you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. Thank you, Lord. Father God, we're grateful for who you are and all that you've done in our lives. Even this morning, through the encouragements, through the songs, through just seeing people on this stage singing out with passion and love, proclaiming that you are good. Lord, I pray that today as we go through your word, that your word would go through us, that there would be a faith response to what you have to say to us today. We want our lives to be shaped. We say that this morning. Lord, we want to change. We want to hear and respond and change. Lord, thank you for the cross. Wonder upon wonder you accomplish through the folly and through the foolishness of the cross. Bring the cross right to our doorstep this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So turn in your Bibles or your phones or look up to the board and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to talk about one particular verse that may be familiar to you, but I want to also see it applied as Paul speaks to the Corinthians. And so we're going to journey a little bit along the lines of this early church in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and 19 is what I'm going to read. But first, a word from St. Brendan. St. Brendan of Burr, he died in 573. Think of that, 573. That's a three-digit number. We're used to four-digit numbers, 2018. This is a three-digit number, so many, many years ago. St. Brendan of Burr, he was from Ireland. He was an Irish dude. And he was good friends with St. Brendan the Voyager. So St. Brendan the Voyager did more traveling, and St. Brendan of Burr kind of stayed put in the town of Burr. And so he, he's quoted as saying this. It's a beautiful quote. He says, if you become... Christ's, you will stumble upon wonder upon wonder, and every one of them is true. This guy here, 500 years after Christ died, he says, if you stumble, if you, what does he say, if you become Christ's, this idea of becoming, it's not just having like doing Christian things or going to church or aligning yourself with some areas of Christian thought. But if you become Christ's, if he owns you, one of the first things I learned as a young Christian is that the word Lord means to whom I belong. That helped me tremendously when I was a teenager. That if I was going to come to Christ, then I belong to him. That all that I am and all that I have and all that I ever will be belongs to Christ. And so hold them loosely. Don't grab them. Don't grasp them. Don't wrestle with God on those things. Say, no, you are the one to whom I belong. And Saint, what's his name, said, if you belong to Christ, you will stumble upon wonder upon wonder. Isn't that a beautiful picture of life? The idea of belonging to Christ, and then whatever comes, you don't know what's coming, but there's a stumbling through life. And, and as you stumble through life, you will stumble upon wonder, upon wonder. And he says, every one of them is true. What a beautiful way to live life. So 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says this. For the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the what? Power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. You know, it's interesting. When the Old Testament is used in the New Testament, the writer of the New Testament is trying to bring an idea, a thought from the Old Testament, which these early people were quite familiar with, and bring that thought into the New Testament. But when, when you hear these words, I will frustrate the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligence, you start to think, well, what, what is this? Does this mean that God is anti-intellectual? Is it that, that maybe to follow Jesus is like, it's not really wisdom, it's not really wise? That it's just some really crazy, half-cocked, irresponsible way of living? Well, definitely not. But when I first read that, I'm thinking, well, why would God want to destroy the wisdom of the wise? We need wisdom of the wise. Why would God want the intelligence of the intelligent to be frustrated? We need smart people in our lives. You need to be a smart person in your life so that you can live well. So when we just read that, we just think, well, is he just anti-intellectual and thinks that we shouldn't do wise things? Of course not. What the writer here is doing, what Paul is doing, is he's bringing an idea from the Old Testament into the New Testament that he wants us to know about, but you don't know what that means, which is why I'm here to explain it to you. Isaiah 29 is what he quotes here, and he says this, Isaiah 29, verse 14, it says this, therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. Can you see what St. Brendan was talking about. I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. What he is saying and what Paul is referring to is that God will bring about a moment in time when all that think they're wise and all that think they're intelligent will be blown away at the incredible things that God accomplishes when he goes to astonish us. And so it's, it's not that we're not wise or we're not intelligent. It's just that those things cannot comprehend the vastness and the profoundness of what God wants to do to astound us with wonder upon wonder. And Paul quotes this when he says, hey, the cross is foolishness to so many people. But to us, it's the power of God. And for those who are only wise and only intelligent, they can't conceive it because God is going to astonish them. God is wise and God is intelligent, but he has so much more. And so it is at this place, Paul says, of the cross where we will be astonished. It is this place where everyone else thinks the cross was a failure, the cross was this terrible, shameful thing. At the cross is where God does wonder upon wonder upon wonder. He did it in the 500s with Saint, what's his name? He says, you know what? If you live your life belonging to Jesus, you will stumble upon wonder upon wonder, and every bit of it's true. Paul says what seems foolish is really the the place, the, the moment, this crossroad of where God will transform your life profoundly. It's at the place of the cross. Why did that seem so foolish to so many? Well, you know some of this, 
But the cross was not seen as a beautiful, decorative thing as it is today. They didn't hang crosses in buildings the time Jesus was hung on one. They didn't wear it as jewelry. They didn't get the tattoo. They didn't do any of that. The cross was this wretched and cruel and gruesome and despicable crucifixion sentenced to death. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't even mention the cross or crucifixion in polite company. It it didn't come up. It was such a crude and detestable word. You just didn't come up. You wouldn't mention it in polite conversation. The cross was cruel and wretched. As a matter of fact, even even the, the Jews at the time, they were taught from Deuteronomy chapter 21 that anyone who hangs from a tree, which they viewed the cross as hanging from a tree, is cursed by God. And so the cross at the time of Christ was this insociable, horrible, horrific, don't even talk about it, disgusting, cruel, violent, curse. And yet only a short time later, a decade later, Paul is writing and he's saying it's this cross which seems so foolish, which seems to wretched place. This is the place where the power of God is manifest. This is the place where Isaiah the prophet refers to and says, you know what? I will astound you with wonder upon wonder. Where? Everyone wondered, where? Where will God do this? Where will God astound us? Where will God blow our minds with wonder upon wonder so that the wise and the intelligent can't even grasp it? Where will that happen? And Paul brings it together and says, right here at the cross, that what is so socially inappropriate to even mention, that is the place where God's power lies. So, you have to ask yourself this cross of fools and wonder. What's your relationship with it? What is your connection with the cross of fools and the cross of wonder? Do you embrace? Do you shun? Do you kind of ignore? Kind of go on with your life and just relegate the cross as some religious image or relic? Or has it become your life? You see, the early Christians, even for us today, began to see and understand the cross as this image, as this embodying this message of ultimate hope. That the cross went from an unspeakable, unspeakable thing to something of the greatest hope of humanity. That it's in the cross that somehow God brings beauty from ashes. Right here at the foot of the cross where all seems lost, where all seems to be despaired, where there is no hope, it's in that place, in that moment that the broken find the hope of wholeness. That the destitute find the hope of being lifted up again. Where the failures of life pile up and accumulate and accumulate and somehow there at the foot of the cross every single one of us get a second and third and fourth and fiftieth chance to live again.
It's at that cross is where the shame of our sin and the pain of those consequences and, and the absolute devastating blame game of all of society is silenced. And there in the midst of hope, we find again joy. We find again peace. We find again purpose. We find new life. The Bible says we are born again because of the cross of Jesus Christ. I think many of us want to live resurrection life. We want the victorious resurrection life. We want to rise up above all of our troubles. We want to somehow find forgiveness and grace so that we can separate our sins as far as the east is from the west. We want to reboot afresh with a right relationship with God, with a right relationship with one another. But the only way to reboot, the only way to find resurrection life is through the cross. Jesus wasn't going to rise from anything until he died to everything. You will not find new life until you find death to the old life. But doesn't the scripture say, I've been crucified with Christ? I no longer live. But the life I live, what? In the body, in the body. Not just in the spirit, not just in some metaphysical, ethereal, conceptual realm. But no, the physical life of this body, I've died to myself. And what I do in this body, I now live for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I live for Christ. I don't live for myself anymore. Why? Because I've been to the cross. And I have died with him. And now this life that I live, I've been resurrected with him as well. I, I love the story of St. Augustine. I, I haven't told it in a while. I've told it before. Where he, he St. Augustine was this stud, man. He was like a young guy. He was, he was an orator, which was kind of like a lawyer, but he could speak. He was gifted. He was talented. He had every benefit in life. And he threw himself into sin. He made money. He wooed women. He was like a chronic. He just slept around. He had all this stuff going on. And his mother, his dear mother, just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for him. And eventually even gave him a call on his cell phone. And his mother sought the Lord and prayed for years and years and years. Until the conviction of God fell on St. Augustine. He wasn't a saint then. He was just Augustine the adulterer. Augustine the proud manipulator. Augustine the self-made man. And so finally the conviction of God came upon him and he repented of his sin. He went to the cross and he died to self. And he got reborn and became a Christian. And there's a story of shortly after his conversion. He's walking down the street. And one of his kind of lady friends runs up to him and says, Augustine, Augustine. And he just keeps walking because he's, he's left that life. He keeps walking. She's like, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. I forget her name, Claudia. And finally he stops and he turns to her and says, I know it's you, but what you don't realize is I'm no longer Augustine. I've been born anew. The life I live in this body, I live for Christ. Christ alone. It's a powerful transformation. So your relationship, your interaction with the cross is so critical. Because I think a lot of Christians that I know, and I, I'm tempted to do it myself, they don't want to die to self. 
We don't want to die to our own desires. We don't want to die to our own power and control of our life. We don't want him to be Lord. We don't want to belong to Christ. We just want a mutual beneficial relationship with Jesus so that when we need him, he's there. And when we don't need him, we can live however the hell we choose to live. Words spoken intentionally. But the cross says that's not possible. The cross says for resurrection life, there must be death. Billy Graham, a couple of Billy Graham quotes. He says this. The cross shows us the seriousness of our sin, but it also shows us the immeasurable love of God. Another quote from Dr. Graham. The cross tells us that God understands our sin and our suffering. For he took our sin and our suffering upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ. From the cross, God declares, I love you. I know the heartaches and sorrows and pains that you feel, and I love you. It is the cross which is the greatest image of God's love for us. For the scriptures say that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, his begotten son, that whoever believes on him will not perish, but have eternal life. The scriptures also say, Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates this love. The love is an action. The love is a demonstration. It is doing stuff. It is pursuing us. That God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. The cross is this profound image of God's love for you. And you know what else? The cross is the profound image of God's delight in you. I want you to think about this because if you've ever wondered if God actually accepts you or likes you or, or even loves you, I would like you to just change the verb a little bit more because he does all those things. But even more than that, God delights He delights in us. And he knows your sin. He knows your brokenness. He knows your compromise and your your manipulations. He knows the mind games you play with him and others. He knows you through and through. But it's in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, the second half of verse 2, it says this. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, that's you. You were the joy. You were the delight set before Christ. He had this option set before him, the cross, set before him the delight and the joy of redeeming humanity, to tear down the dividing wall of sin and purchasing redemption. And he says, I delight in them. And for that joy, for that delight, I scorn the cross. I don't care about the I will endure the cross because my delight is them. My destination is you. And the testimony that rises from the redeemed, the church of God, is the glory of the Lamb of God who was slain and rose again. joy set before him. 
Now, Paul writes these things to the Corinthians because he, he wants the reality and the truth of the cross to have a transforming effect. The cross is not just about you getting forgiven. The cross is the, the forgiveness doorway into a new life in Christ, into living for Jesus in a way that delights the heavens and God and that brings a testimony on the earth that hope is not lost, that God does bring beauty from ashes, that God does resurrect the dead, that God does wipe slates clean and give people second, third, fourth, and 50th chances. The cross is the beginning and the constant companion of any walk that says, I'll follow Jesus. And to the Corinthians, there were a couple things, there were many things that Paul was addressing in these scriptures. I'm going to give you three today. You'll see them if you read the first several chapters. But um, the first thing that the cross does, wonder upon wonder, the transforming power of the cross. Three things. Number one, apostleship. The cross rectifies and heals broken understanding of leadership. Paul had to work this with the Corinthians because they, they were all messed up with Paul. And he, he says, no, it's, it's this... The power of the cross makes your relationship with leadership right and make leadership's function right. Apostleship. Number two, sanctity. The power of the cross, the power of the cross helps us to live a holy life. Sanctity means holy. The sanctity of life, the holiness and purity of life the unborn it's referred to that we use the word sanctified we use the word saint but the cross is the place where we get right holy living and number three unity the Corinthians struggled with chronic division among them chronic division their differences became weapons that they wielded against one another instead of the very ingredients by which God would make them one strong body so the cross for the Corinthians and for us and many other areas as well, he was addressing three areas, leadership, purity, and unity. Let's just take a look at some of these. Number one, apostleship. So Paul, the apostle, the apostle means sent one, right? So Paul is a missionary. He, he leaves home base, Jerusalem, Antioch, and he's doing these missionary journeys. But he is a, he's a missionary. He's a leader as well. And he's going and he's preaching the gospel and God has given him a purpose and a mission to lead and to proclaim the gospel. And in so doing, the Holy Spirit brings all kinds of response to the gospel and these churches formed. And what happens was the churches were forming and in Corinth, there were a lot of people that had all kinds of thoughts. You go into the history of Corinth and anyways, it's, I won't go all into that. But Corinth was repopulated um, after like the Greeks were defeated and just before the time of Christ. And basically, Rome gave Corinth to mercenaries and soldiers and all kinds of citizens. They were transplanted out, and they recolonized it. But it was a ruckus place. It was filthy with sensuality. It was ripe with pride and violence and struggles and power struggles. And it was filled with this delight and sensuality. They loved to bring in the next speaker and hear it, watch the latest movie or watch, hear the next, all this talented people. They didn't care what the content was. You've heard of the sophist, the sophistic. 
They, they, all they cared about was the flash and the bling. They didn't care about content. Anyways, all that was going on in Corinth. Some of you have glazed over like we just went in a history lesson. Forgive me. But this is the people. And when the gospel rose up there, these people functioned the same way. And they had this attitude towards Paul. Like, you know what, Paul? It's great what you did, but you know what? You're not even here. So we're going to pick and choose our own leadership. We're, we know, we think we know what's best. And so they were denying Paul any line of authority into the church. They're saying, we don't like what you say, Paul. Or you're saying things that are too harsh. You're, and, and so they began to be very dismissive of godly, God-given leadership. And so Paul writes to address it. If you look in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 and 2, it says, this then is how you ought to regard us, the leaders, the apostles, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. You'll notice when Paul begins to address leadership with the Corinthians, he doesn't start with, you need to obey me, you need to respect me. He begins by defining what real leadership should look like. Leadership is serving. doesn't matter where you're at. If you're a husband, a father in your home, any form of leadership that you possess is expressed in servanthood. It doesn't matter if you're like the supervisor at work and you've got all these people working for you. Your leadership, according to kingdom principles, is defined by your ability to be the servant of all. And Paul says, hey, this is how it should look from us, that we, you view us this way, we are servants to you. If you're the pastor, if you have any other role in the church of leadership, and people have leadership roles in this church, thank God, we need great leaders in the church who take responsibility, don't shirk it, they're diligent with what they've been given, and they serve in such a way as to lead well. But they're first and foremost servants. And second of all, Paul says, to us leaders, to the apostles, to us servants, here's what's happening. God has entrusted us with something, and we must be faithful. If you're a leader, if God entrusts you with anything, whatever realm, at work, in church, in the home, in public society, the point is this, that you are a servant, and that you are faithful what's been given. Faithful not because you'll get your hand slapped or because you'll get in trouble if you're not but faithful because you serve the Lord, not man, in your leadership. So many of you are leaders in whatever sphere, whatever realm. Even some of you young people, you have powerful influence to lead. Don't shirk that. You must be faithful with the influence and the leadership that God has given you. And you must use that influence, use those positions to serve people and to promote them and ultimately to glorify Christ because it's not your earthly masters that you're serving, it's God himself. And so Paul's first commentary on leadership is defining what it is. We're servants and we have to be faithful. He learned that at the cross. Jesus served. He didn't come to seek. He came to seek and to save the lost and to serve. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And when it got hard, when it seemed impossible, what did Jesus say? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was the ultimate leader. And at the cross, we find his qualities of leadership and take them on ourselves. There's another aspect of leadership, however, 
that Paul wanted to address. And it was the way that the people responded to his leadership. And so you'll find in verse 15 that Paul says this, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For even Christ Jesus, sorry, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I send you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the church. Verse 18, some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. And so as much as it's important for leaders to function in a godly way, as servants, as faithful with what they've been entrusted to, so also it is for people to respond rightly to leadership. And you have to ask yourself, what has been my response to leadership? Do I delight and rejoice in leadership? Am I like the rebel without a cause? Am I, do I like to kind of shirk and avoid obedience to leadership or, or respect to leadership? I, I think we all have to deal with this because we've all experienced different types of leadership. Some of you have been led by brilliant parents. You've had great work experiences. I've had some fantastic bosses. I've had some great, great bosses. I had one really bad boss, but I love leadership because I've been treated well in my life by leadership. But it's very easy for people who have not been treated well by leadership. Leadership has been harsh or demanding or selfish, maybe kept you out of promotions, maybe tried to push you down instead of lift you up. There's a lot of reasons people do feel hurt by leadership, even church leadership. Sometimes people feel disappointed that leadership never noticed them. Whatever the reasons, whatever the realms, many people have a very difficult relationship with leaders. And they do their best to avoid them. And so Paul says here, wait a second. You need to treat your fathers well. You need to demonstrate respect to your leaders. Some of you have become arrogant. Say, ah, throwing off you, Paul, throwing off you, because I know better now. I've learned a couple things. This isn't my first trip around the mountain. And they begin to treat leadership with contempt, cynically or selfishly, selectively. And Paul says, wait a second. You need to treat your leaders with respect. You need to treat your leaders with honor. You could imagine Paul, who calls himself their father, sending Timothy, who he calls his son, his spiritual son, not his biological son. And he says, I'm going to send my son to my other children. What's Timothy going to say? He's like, all right, all right, brothers and sisters, here's what I want us to do. I want us to start honoring and respecting and receiving our father's input. I mean, that's peer level ministry, right? If there is children, he's sending Timothy as a child, and, and Timothy is trying to say, remember, remember that Paul is here for your good. He's only trying to be faithful, and he's only trying to serve you, even though that's hard. Paul has been noted. There's a harsh letter that's not recorded in our New Testament, but Paul called some of these guys out into account. 
He got in their face in their sin. He's like, you cannot behave yourself that way. And so he was not just like a little gentle old grandfatherly type father. Paul brought discipline, and they didn't like it. But here's Timothy, the brother, saying, look, your leaders are trying to be faithful. Your leader is trying to serve you because God has entrusted him with something beautiful, a mystery from heaven. And you need to respect and you need to honor that. You know, for many, that had to be a very difficult pill to swallow for whatever reason. They may have had bad experiences. And through this letter, you find Paul continuing to discuss it and share with him and pour out his heart. But spiritual authority particularly, it can't be forced. It it can't be demanded. It has to be received. It has to be received. I don't know what you were like with your father. I'm talking to the guys mostly, but even the ladies. With your father, there was a point when you just did what your parents told you to do because that's what all you knew. And there's a point in your life when you begin to question our fathers, don't we? We begin to see their errors and their mistakes and their weaknesses. You begin to recognize that your parents don't have it all figured out and that you, just by the reality of being alive not as long, have made less mistakes as they have. And so perhaps your opinion is better than theirs. Give it enough time. You will probably even surpass your parents' mistakes. But you feel that in your heart, don't you? You're like, wait a second. I I don't know if they should make all my, I don't know. And this independence rises in you. And some of it's so precious and so healthy. Because otherwise you'd be like 40 years old, living, you know, your mom's still doing your laundry, that kind of thing. And if your mom still does your laundry, good for you. Keep it going as long as you can. All I'm saying is independence is great for a young person. You need to grow into that. However... What often gets swallowed up in our desire for independence is our love and our respect and our honoring of those who have led us and continue to lead us. Because even as a grown man, we need to continue to honor and respect our leaders in whatever form they take in your life. Amen? That's the first bit. The message of the cross is power because it allows us to receive our leaders Not because they're perfect, but because that somehow, through them, the power of God is at work. Number two, I want us to see this. Sanctity. The idea of living a holy life. Sanctity and saint are kind of similar words. I won't bring out the Greek word, but this idea that we find in the scriptures is that we are called to live a holy life. And the Corinthians weren't. The Corinthians were living however they pleased. And, and here's why. If you jump to 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 6, you'll see some of the discussion. Verse 12, it says this. And we believe that Paul is quoting some of the things they're saying, and he's trying to deal with them in their attitudes. So verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, I have the right to do anything. This is their attitude towards Paul and towards the gospel you say, but not everything is beneficial. And so the Corinthians have this attitude like, you know what? In Christ, I've been forgiven. I can do whatever I want. Some things are better than others, but you know what? In Christ, I'm free. That's what they're saying. Have you ever felt that way? And he says, 
I have the right to do anything, but I will be mastered by nothing. It's as if they're saying, you know what? I can do whatever I want as long as it's not mastered. I'm not mastered by it. So, you know, my, my little drug addiction, I could quit anytime I want. I'm not mastered by it, but it doesn't hurt to do it. All that alcohol I consume, it doesn't control me. I'm just having fun. I'm just trying to loosen up after a long, stressful week. Yeah, that pornography problem, I mean, it's just cheap thrills. It's not like my heart really wants that kind of thing. I'm just, I'm just you know, I can do whatever I want. As long as it doesn't masturbate, I could quit whatever I want. And the Corinthians, like us, build these rationales inside of our mind that cheapen the grace of God and say, we can live however we want. God will just forgive me. It's not that big of a deal. And in doing so, they've flushed their holiness down the toilet. And suddenly the church is rife with sin, even sexual sin, that Paul says doesn't even exist outside of the church. And there it is inside of the church. They've lost their understanding of the sanctity, the holiness, the purity for which we're supposed to live and serve the Lord. And it brings us back to the cross. And so I'll just continue on. Verse 13, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Again, they're rationalizing, saying, you know, it doesn't matter. I just, I'll eat whatever I want. It doesn't matter how big my body gets. I mean, eventually the body's just going to be gone and the food's going to be gone. It won't matter. In eternity, I'll have a new body. I won't even have to work out. And yet they're saying, so I don't have to control my desire for food. Just eat whatever you want. Food for the body, stomach, stomach for food. It doesn't matter. Paul takes issue with them. Because even our, our care of our bodies is a reflection of who God made us to be in the image likeness of God. The body, however, he says, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he also will raise us. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ, which is my body, and unite them with a prostitute? Never. What? Or don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it says the two will become one flesh. There's a spiritual dynamic to sexuality. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him. So be one with the Lord. Don't be one with a prostitute or anyone else outside of marriage. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. And then, get this, you are not your own. Verse 20, you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I would say that in Corinth, when this letter was read, it was probably pretty quiet in there as well. Because Paul is saying, look, the life that we live, 
even in the body, the physical body, the physical, the physicality that we have been given is meant to be holy and dedicated to the Lord himself. And here's the problem. And it's, the problem is sin. Sin in your life, sin in my life, permeated sin all over our society. And it comes from this, it comes from our relationship with our desires. Right? We'll take food. Food's easy. We desire food. I have a deep, trained, powerful desire in my soul, the deepest part of me, for ho-hos. I love them. My father taught me that. When I was a kid, we'd be driving to church, and he'd look over at the, like, the three of us. He'd say, you know what? You know what I'm having? We're like, what are you having? I'm having a junk food attack. I didn't know what a junk food attack was until my dad taught me. A junk food attack is when you're so possessed with a desire for a ho-ho, you speed to the closest 7-Eleven and buy a bag of them, and you pound them on your way to church, which, in my defense, is why I fell asleep during every single sermon I've ever heard, because as soon as that sugar crashes, you're like, it's over. You can't control that. Our relationship with our desires is a dangerous relationship. Because there's something inside of us that says, if I desire it, it must be inherently good. Right? Have you ever faced one of your desires and said, hey, Mr. Desire, you're not good. Well, the desire comes back and says, well, who do you think you are calling me not good? I'm just a desire. I'm good. I'm what you want. If you want it, it must be good. And then you're like, oh, yeah, you got a point. Hey, pass the ho-hos, right? As a teenager, before you know it, you got zits all over your face. You don't know where they came from. But dealing with our desires in a healthy way, recognizing that all of our desires are not good, and you counter your desires via your decisions. So it's desire versus decision. I'll never forget, I was watching the Super Bowl with a friend many, many years ago, before I was married and before anything else, and this beer commercial came on, and it was like Coors Light on the beach, right? Those commercials have been well done, sexually explicit, for generations. I remember watching the commercial being like, wow, cool. I don't like beer, but I like the ladies in the commercial. And I remember my friend who was sitting right next to me, and, and his name's Chris, he says, he kind of shakes his head, like, oh. He's like, that's not any good for me. And he walked out of the room. I'm like, wait a second. It never even occurred to me that watching that commercial wasn't good for me because I enjoyed it. I desired to watch half-naked ladies drinking Coors beer. It was just, it was a desire that was just sinful but intrinsic to what it means to be human. We have dozens of these desires. I'll say even more than that the course of our life or every single day. And your ability to identify the desires that are healthy and bless those and encourage those and identify the desires that are unhealthy is your power with God's help to overcome sin. But you have to be clear on what your decisions will be. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Yes. At the foot of the cross, have you determined to say, Lord, it's for you, 
in your strength and by the grace of God, I desire to live a holy life. And then what you do is you just begin living your life and identifying your desires. Good desire, bad desire. Strong bad desire, gonna need help. Big strong desire, big strong bad desire. I'm gonna need a couple friends for this guy. But you can overcome your desires. Because the desire in itself is not sin. But when that desire gets hold of you, and it becomes to drive you, James says, it is birthed into something bigger. And it's birthed into sin. And once sin is birthed, it births into death. Many people have been birthed into death because they've not dealt with their desires. Your decision is to obey God's word because at the foot of the cross, you gave your life to him. And you recognize that even your body has been bought with a price. It's beautiful. All right, I've been preaching a very long time. And I think it's time to wrap it up. I won't do number three. I'll bring, come back to number three about unity. But I want to take us back to the cross. And I want to take us back to your relationship with the cross. And I want to invite you afresh to come back to the cross, to make the cross a central, crucial, foundational part of your life. That there at the cross again today, you will die to self. You'll die to the flesh. That every day, Jesus says, you'll pick up your cross and say, I don't live for myself. I live for Jesus. I live for the one who loved me. I live for the one who gave himself for me, who delights in me. And therefore, I determine in my heart and my life to continue to offer myself as a living sacrifice. So stand with me. We have a final song we're going to sing together. I invite the worship team up. Lord Jesus would have you victorious. The Lord Jesus would have you as a beautiful, purified bride, filled and covered with the grace of God. Scripture says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean there's not conviction. You're not condemned today because Christ bore your sin. But if you're experiencing conviction, conviction is this thing in your heart, you're like, oh, oh got me. I, I, that's me. I've got to change. I've got to come back to the cross. I've got to, I've got to find a way forward that does not include yielding to that sinful desire. Conviction is a gift to you. God save us from living lives without conviction, just not even caring if we please God or not. But if you found conviction today that says, you know what, I need to come back to the cross, I invite you to that. You can do it in your seat. You can do it up at the front. Come to the cross. Again, lay your life before you. Say, Lord, I want to die to myself today. And I want, by the grace of God, for you to raise me up out of this slimy pit of sin. I invite you to do that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for the way you dealt with Corinthians and God how you deal with our hearts today 
that, Lord, we would have a right relationship with leaders and that we would be right leaders ourselves. God, I pray that, Lord, our desires would be to please you and not to sin. That, God, we would treasure holiness, sanctity. Purify us today. Let your grace come and rush in and wipe us clean. And, Lord, I pray that you would not let us be prisoner to our desires. But instead, oh God, you would bring us conviction and help us to desire and to do that which pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name.